This week, we interview Eric Muninrand from Brown Hat Security. Uh, a cast of characters by the name of Josh and Scott will join us this evening to give a segment titled Rudolph the Credit Card Swiping Reindeer. In our stories of the week, Huawei is looking to buy a security vendor, Nokia sues Apple, home routers are still under attack, why some are giving up on PGP, and a whole lot more. So make sure you stay tuned to the final episode of Security Weekly for 2016. All that and more coming up on this edition of Paul's Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. by the SANS Institute, the most trusted source for computer certification training and research. Visit SANS.org to explore their full curriculum and latest training offers. Onapsis, the leading provider of solutions to protect ERP systems from cyber attacks. Customers can secure their SAP and Oracle business critical platforms from espionage, sabotage, and financial fraud risks. Visit them on the web at onapsis.com. Pony Express, check out their line of penetration testing devices, including the Pone Pad, the Pone Phone, and the Pone Pro. For enterprises, there's Pone Pulse, providing continuous visibility into wired, Wi-Fi, and Bluetooth spectrums across all physical locations, including remote sites and branch offices. For all those hard to reach places, there's Pony Express. Visit them on the web at PonyExpress.com. Welcome everyone to Paul's Security Weekly, the very special holiday edition. That's right, we're broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island. I'm flying solo here in the studio with nothing but the pug on my ugly Christmas sweater to keep me company here on set. However, on the lines via Skype, we've got a cast of characters. We're without Michael Santar, Calangelo even, Cangelo, <laughs> Santar Cangelo, so you can tell I've just started drinking. Now now more than ever, you could just call him Santa. Santa, but Santa's not here. He's very busy this time of year. That was my joke. Uh, he's actually in Disney with his family, but, you know. Uh, on the lines via Skype, <clears throat> some of our regular host, Mr. Joff Dyer, is here with us. Welcome, Joff. Hey, good to be here again. The Thunder from Down Under, if you want to call me that. But no, don't do that, actually. <laughs> that's, that's a show you yeah. tell me you go to in Vegas, but I guess yeah, that's different. That <laughs> wow, my wife didn't tell me about that one. <laughs> uh, Mr. Jeff Mann is here with us tonight as well. <clears throat> Jeff, welcome. How's it going, Paul? May going, the force be with you. Going fantastic. Did you see Rogue One yet? Not yet. I'm saving it for uh, the holiday week off. <clears throat> Very nice. I'll do a matinee. Very nice. 
Well, I won't spoil it for you or anyone else listening. Wait, wait. Do they destroy the Death Star? <laughs> um, that it's in the sequel. I heard that that happens. <laughs> I, I heard the sequel is going to be called a, a New Hope too. I guess that's like a spoiler in and of itself. <laughs> there you go. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Uh, make sure you go to securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe. Use your holiday break as it were to catch up on all of our shows, including Enterprise Security Weekly, Hack Naked News, and Startup Security Weekly. We've got a lot in store for you in 2017. So make sure you stay tuned and subscribe to all of our shows with your favorite podcast catcher. Our feature interview for this evening is Eric Munin-Rand. Eric is an amateur blacksmith and professional blue team consultant from Southern California who lives in the mountains with his wife and cats. Having found a way to turn paranoia into money, he spends his days providing technical support to defensive security operations folks and contemplates how to make everyone's jobs a lot easier. Eric, welcome to the show. I've never been a feature before. That's fun. Yes, you are, in fact, a feature. Uh, Eric, how'd you get your start in information security? I just kind of evolved out of uh, previous roles. Uh, I mean, I've ever since I've been playing with computers, they've always gone wrong around me. It's just a thing that happens. And so I got sick of asking other people for help and decided to figure out how to fix it myself. And, well, as we all know, once you go down that road, it, it just keeps going. Absolutely. Um, so uh, what what made you, a lot of people that do consulting in our field are focused on offense. What made you want to focus on defense? I just don't have the killer instinct, I guess. <laughs> mm. I disagree. You do really well at that, Eric. <laughs> Sorry, I used to work with Eric several companies ago. And, uh, yeah, so uh, that's he does really well at the killer instinct. Uh, let me take the, a moment to introduce, well, they need no introduction here on the show. Josh Marpet and Scott Lyons are here with us uh, this evening as well. Josh and Scott, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here as always. And you're yep, on our yep. like, except for your sweater, Paul. I'm just going to say, uh, except for your sweater. Love my sweater. Okay. It's the the candy striped sleeves that that make it. It's so ugly. Oh, it's, it's well, maybe not. Oh. I think the whole ensemble is really. Hey, I you know I I try and achieve greatness. So if I'm going to get an ugly sweater, I'm going all out. There's going to be no question, right? <laughs> But did you have to pair it with the hat? It, 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 it I parallels did. I did. You know, you... weapons of mass destruction of my eyes, okay? <laughs> yes, there's crisp because you know why? There's no Christmas trees in my sweater, so I had to make sure I had some on my hat. <laughs> it is a bit harsh, yeah. Um, and this is coming from a guy who habitually wears Hawaiian shirts. Nice. Nice. <laughs> uh, See, that hat would drive me absolutely nuts because I'd always have to make sure that their Christmas trees placed right square in between the eyes and then everybody's just gonna look at me cross-eyed because they're seeing all those christmas trees oh you would you would um so eric what what are some things that you consult on uh with companies uh today what are some of the hot topics when you uh do your consulting on the defensive side well, generally, it's it's folks who are just getting into the whole uh, defensive infosec field at, at, in general. I mean, I'm talking to folks who have never had any kind of uh, information security program at all. And that's often an interesting learning experience as they realize that it goes quite a bit beyond just, okay, I want to have PCI compliance. I want to have HIPAA compliance. And then they realize, actually, being able to, to 
secure their infrastructure goes a lot further than just generating some compliance reports. What's the thing that, that most people are kind of shocked by or taken back by or kind of like, like grown where they're like, oh, yeah, I guess we got to do that. Like, what's the most uh, kind of compelling thing that they have a realization about when it comes to defense? Um, this is going to sound really bad, but uh, network segmentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, once they start realizing what that entails, uh, there have been some folks who I've talked with who uh, abruptly realize exactly what they've been laying themselves open to. And uh, even even just over an audio link, you can hear them go, oh. Mm-hmm. So it, it becomes interesting. <clears throat> So uh, in terms of uh, really what I think the underlying causes are projects that are a lot of work, right, tend to elicit that response, network segmentation being just one of them. Well, yeah, and and another thing that gets in, in people's heads is they suddenly discover that there's all these assets on the network that they did not know they had, which yep. becomes a little entertaining at times as, as people realize, hey, wait a second, who owns this? Where did this come from? Uh, I mean, I, I, I will admit that I do laugh a little bit on mute from time to time when, when that happens. But asset, man, 90% of the stuff that they're coming to realizations about is just good, solid systems administration and hygiene. Um, and, you know, even getting to the part that's actually security is often quite a bit of work. <laughs> What the other uh, category of a project, Eric, and you hit on a, a hot button topic for me in network segmentation. Um, the authentication and authorization in Windows environments is something to me that I realized this year. And believe me, I hate like looking back on the year as to what happened, and I hate making predictions for 2017. However, one of the continuing trends that really came to light for me in 2016 was just how lacking people are. In a Windows environment, especially when it comes to securing the authentication and authorization, and there have been uh, uh, an official study and some unofficial studies in conversations with myself that you know basically pass the hash, WPAD, and all these authentication attacks. How does the conversation go with some of these uh, smaller and people just implementing a security program when you tell them things like, "Yeah, you need to like manage and control your Windows environment with respects to authentication and authorization." Uh, to be honest, a lot of the folks, by the time I can get them to the part where we can even talk about that, are, are rather less surprised. Um, I, I generally try to encourage people to do research into the kinds of things that are going on in their environment during the learning process. Um, and, and generally, by the time that comes up, it's, it's less of a surprise to them, although I have gotten a few alarmed emails saying, oh, dear, what is this? Why, why, why is this a thing? What can I do to, to stop it? Mm. Um, one of the technologies that I've, you know, been talking with people as a uh, kind of a, a product that can be used to help that, although having a really good Windows admin is certainly the first step, but implementing some kind of PIM or IAM also is there. Are there solutions in that light that exist for people just implementing a, a security program or smaller businesses? Uh, not a whole lot that I've run across. Uh, I, admittedly, that's that's probably one of my weaker areas there, I, I will admit. Um, generally, I try to hang out more on the uh, the Unix side of the house. But um, 
as a as a general rule, uh, a lot of the stuff that comes up, the, the the folks in the smaller businesses don't really have a whole lot of tools that are structured in such a way that they can take effective advantage of them, um, and so it becomes kind of a a, a chore to get people to to learn the uh, large biz type stuff. Mm. It's been identified uh, this year in several interviews that I've done that the small, what we deem small business, but how we define that could certainly differ, right? Small business could mean 50, 100, 300, 500 people or more uh, and speak to some kind of revenue. It all depends on how you slice the pie. Um, What are some of the opportunities that you see for software security startups, other than the one we've already identified with PIM and IAM, uh, for the smaller uh, businesses? Uh, in terms of the opportunities that I'm seeing, a lot of it is is mostly concerned around helping people migrate from the the very basic ad hoc networking, uh, the 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 kind of thing that the single IT guy throws together uh, in a couple of weekends to to get the business going, uh, and going from that kind of organic, uh, uncontrolled uh, inventory to something that's more structured. Um, that may have configuration management or may have uh, really any kind of, of actual structure, actual uh, understanding of what they actually have. Uh, and generally just going from something that's ad hoc and, and managed managed by a, a spreadsheet <laughs> on a file share uh, to something with actual uh, protocol, actual uh, change control uh, is some general capability to understand what they have and to effectively make use of it. That that transition there is the, the really hard part. Mm, I, I like that. That's an interesting uh, perspective. And, uh, you know, we do a whole show on startups, so I hope folks are listening in that realm about some of the, the challenges with respect to security. Um, Josh, I know you and Eric uh, have a history together. Um, <laughs> So a relation, a previous relationship, I guess we would call yeah, it. Yeah. Well, I started a startup called Bijoti, and uh, Eric was uh, one of the primary engineers at that startup, and he's was that the MSSP? Literally, uh, MSSP he's amazing. Was that the MSSP Sorry? for small business startup, Josh? Yeah. Okay. That was the the sock in the box type of MSSP yes. for small businesses, and uh, Eric just was has amazing talents. One of his amazing talents is he's able to acronymize anything. Um, <laughs> I love it. We literally, I forget what it was, uh, I, we, we actually made a legitimate acronym out of Swamp Ass. Nice. Uh, <laughs> I like uh, your usage of acronym as a verb. That was that was fantastic. I, what else am I supposed to do? He's yeah. able to make anything into an acronym. you got to verb it, you know? <laughs> it's. It's it's a uh, it's a survival mechanism. I did work in the government sector. You you have to be able to do that. I was going to say that smells of a DOD background. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, and well, more than a little bit. And um, he's 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 very very methodical and very very detail oriented, and it works. We were able to take a startup uh, which was running like a cat with its hair on fire. And very much bring it to policy and procedure. And uh, Eric was huge on that. So I can see very easily why he's doing what he's doing with the, the smaller companies uh, and doing that well. Eric, I got a question for you, actually, if you don't mind. Go for it, Jack. I got an answer for you. 
Uh, so with the smaller companies you're running into, any of them virtualized, are you having the same problems? So if you have a company that does run mostly on SaaS, uh, are you having the same issues with the companies that are sort of old school ad hoc, as you put it? Um, I have this one client who um, they, they have decided to move from a, a traditional data center hosted environment and their stated goal is to move completely to AWS. Personally, I think they are slightly delusional, um, <laughs> but that's you know just my opinion, and you know it's not my particular place in this contract to tell them that. Uh, so it's it's been an, a, a a very well interesting uh, road to try and help them understand how to manage their their inventory and how to understand their security posture as they do this. Uh, in the meantime, trying to teach them the platform as we go along. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a loaded uh, statement, Eric, for sure. If I've ever heard one about migrations to the cloud. And uh, first, when it, the way you described it was first interesting to me because you said, well, they've made the decision that they just want to go all into AWS. And it sounds to me like that's really all the thought they've given it. Like one day they read an article and then just said, you know what? <laughs> Everything should be in the cloud in AWS. Sounds to me and like somebody the sold them on, they can save a lot of money. It's cheaper. Yeah. Let's do it. And, yeah. and it makes all that's their security problems yeah. go away. So having said that, did you find that that was the case? Or did they develop goals and return on investment and look at value and risk and all those other things? This has kind of been an ongoing thing for oh, a couple of months now. So there have been a lot of discussions, uh, only some of which I've been privy to. Mm -hmm. um, and and so I, I I can't really go into details, but they have a, a somewhat more, a, a little bit more understanding of the, the subtleties mm -hmm. involved in, in that it's not as straightforward a transfer as they anticipated. Right. Now, <laughs> That's so diplomatic. So nice very diplomatic. What is, let's see how you are diplomatic with the next question. How, how are the skill levels uh, in relation to moving to the cloud? In other words, are they extremely competent or completely unprepared or somewhere in between in terms of having the skills to be able to build out an infrastructure in AWS? Um, I have to say that it's been a, a learning experience for all parties involved as they have uh, grown and evolved in their roles. And what is that like across all of your clients? Not just, you know, I want to pick on this. One. Oh, across all of them? Mm. Uh, it, it varies widely. I mm. mean, there's, there's, it, there's honestly no real way to compare uh, different clients in, in this particular space. There are some who are, who have heard the word cloud. And there are some people who are much better at AWS than I could ever hope to be. Uh, yeah. That is their specialty. So it's 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 really a, a mix depending on the specific client and uh, what their goals are in, in what they're trying to do. I mean, hey, there's some who just want some cloud assets, mm -hmm. and there are some who want everything in the cloud, and there are some who have very interesting ideas as to the architectures that they want to have. Mm. I, I tend to think that there's somewhat of a skills gap there, but, um, you know, as it varies, you, you wonder if the decisions that people are making when they're looking at all the options you have, and even just something like AWS alone, 
like what decisions are going to end up being good for both, you know, business continuity, uh, integrity of your data, and then security, and which ones are going to just go horribly wrong? I'd love to see like a case study of, you know, folks that are working with even small businesses or large enterprises moving to the cloud and what some of those lessons learned are. Yeah, there's... It's it's going to vary widely depending on the kind of business that they're in. Uh, some businesses lend themselves to quick and easy migrations, mm-hmm. um, and some businesses really are not suited for cloud operations but want to force it anyway. Right. <clears throat> um, so uh, Jack Daniel said that we should talk about DNS, and specifically we should talk about a project that you did called Foghorn. Can you tell us about that, Eric? Yes, that's that's been uh, that's been kind of my, my primary focus over the past year uh, through one thing and another. Basically, I got really irritated when reading through phishing emails and decided that those didn't need to succeed, and so I <laughs> got really kind of obsessed over this for a bit and decided that using um, an old uh, an old SMTP trick might be suitable for the purpose of making phishing emails no longer work. Um, and so long story short, uh, with the help of a couple of very good friends of mine, uh, we kind of came up with the notion that you should go and gray list uh, previously unseen domains. Uh, and if you control your DNS infrastructure appropriately, uh, that gives you not only a means of, of keeping your staff from clicking on things that, yes, they oughtn't, but they will anyway, uh, but it also gives you a little bit more insight into uh, other potential uh Issues that might arise that can be detected via DNS. In this, wait, wait, you're saying people click stuff? I mean, seriously? I know. You're saying that? I know. It's just a thing that just keeps happening. <laughs> when you say gray list, Eric, what do you, in this context, um, define gray list for me? Okay, so you've got your notions of your blacklist and your whitelist. Everyone knows those. A blacklist is a list of things that you should not allow, a whitelist is a list of things that you only allow. Uh, and they have various strengths and weaknesses between the two of them. A gray list is, okay, we're not going to allow it yet, but if it's still around after a period of time, then we may allow it. Uh, this is used in email uh, as a spam prevention mm-hmm. uh, mechanism. Uh, it's it's wonderful. I love it right to death. Uh, it Basically, if a particular address has not emailed you before, then you'll go and reject it initially. And then after some period of time, if it retries, you'll allow it through. Uh, This is to take advantage of the fact that spammers are extremely lazy and do not write standards compliant mail transport agents. Uh, They're only interested in shoving out as many emails as possible. And so they aren't interested in waiting around for something that rejects to attempt to retry it correctly. So that's interesting. So, so spammers, MTAs don't typically retry ever? They're just like one and done? It's it's going to depend on the spammer specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, different ones obviously have different methods. But as as a general rule, many of them do not. Hmm. It's it's something that people noticed a while back and generated this whole concept of email graylisting, uh, and so I've I've kind of taken that notion and brought it over to the DNS world, 
where if you see a previously unseen uh, DNS request, uh, you reject it or have it resolved locally uh, for some period of time. If it's legitimate, then you can let it through at some later point in time. Or, uh, well, honestly, if it's that big a deal, then the uh, the employee to this is aimed at businesses, obviously, but the uh, the employee can file a ticket with support and mm-hmm. get it unblocked. Right. Now, do you find that also uh, spammers will change uh, their DNS uh, sending domains frequently too, and kind of round oh, yes. robin them? And that also kind of speaks to the gray listing method as being very effective. Yeah, that's that's the fun part is that. A lot of these tactics that are used are specifically to address the weaknesses in blacklisting. Blacklists are somewhat reactive. Mm. Blacklists need to be updated constantly. And there are a lot of people who spend quite a lot of time updating blacklists. And they are wonderful people because they have made this tactic possible. Uh, And so accordingly, once a given domain gets blacklisted, they have to move to the next one and move to the next one. And so they have developed all these lovely blacklist evasion mechanisms. Uh, In one of them that I happen to, I kind of have a little respect for these guys, the domain generation algorithms. They go and generate hundreds and thousands of domains and registers some number of them so that the blacklist maintainers have to run around like chickens without heads. And meanwhile, it's likely that at least some of those domains will be live. That is a a very clever tactic. And it's extremely useful for me because this means that they are guaranteed not to have shown up before, and so they will not succeed. Uh, So does that mean that there are domains that they will use later but they're not using yet? In other words, the domain is old enough to go past the domain age threshold? Sometimes. I've, I've seen a couple indications of domains that have shown up in, in my spam folders uh, that I've never gone to them. I'd have no reason to go to them, but they've been around for you know, a week or two, which is you know kind of exceptionally long in this particular uh, field, but they're obviously being used. Interesting, because I, I know companies that won't accept mail from domains that are less than, say, two or three months old or whatever, uh, exactly. under that premise that if they're a real business, they would have been there for a little while more than that. Exactly. And, you know, that that, that also feeds into the whole uh, domain reputation thing, mm-hmm. which, again, is it's a beautiful concept. You look for domains that have been around long enough and have accrued few enough complaints that they're likely to be legitimate. But, again, that that really doesn't help against, for instance, uh, the, the old trick of you, you poach a domain from a company that goes out of business and you use that to send off spam. Uh, you know, that domain will have had a, a long and honorable reputation, as it were. Uh, but, you know, two weeks after they file for Chapter 11, all of a sudden you're getting spam from them, and that's just not helpful. Well, um, some research that Logarithm did can help that situation. Uh, they have a way to trace back and correlate. So let's say the spammer sets up a temporary domain and it's brand new. They identify it as a potential domain that's sending spam. They can look up who uh, owns that domain and then all the other domains that they own. And that would then, in conjunction with your gray listing method, help to kind of correlate and say, well, no, that's a, that's a bad, even though that has domain has a good reputation, it's associated with this other account because they're lazy and they don't change their registration information for every domain that they're registering. 
Well, they wouldn't need to. I mean, if if it works, why bother doing more work than you really have to? Right, right. We capitalize I on mean, the laziness of attackers. What, they're they're in this to make money, mm-hmm. and so what some people they, call laziness, other people call efficiency. That's this, true. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what so speak of the sysadmin. Yeah. But uh, you know, it's it's a question of attackers have budgets. They are in this to make money. They're not. This is these kind of phishing attacks are generally for a specific goal. Uh, either it's some kind of you know, super app, nation state, whatever the, the the cool term is this week, or usually it's I want to make money by stealing people's credit cards or whatever. And the more you can raise the cost, the more work they have to do, the less attractive a target you are. So it's it's not so much outrunning the bear; it's outrunning the uh, your friend with you. bad sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> so, in all of this work that you've been doing, right? Um, besides getting completely owned or having a DDoS take you down, what's also another really big target that small businesses need to worry about from a cybersecurity standpoint, based on the research that you've done, the methods that you've collected, and where you see uh, the future of small business going. Uh, What I'm really trying to get at here is like a top three list of things that small businesses really need to pay attention to. You know, they can't really do much about a DDoS. And if they get owned, you know, nine times out of 10, small businesses are going to say, well, I need all of my data back. So I'm just going to pay the ransom. So take those two off the list. What would you identify as being the things that small businesses really, really, really need to key in on uh, to help them? Uh, Well, to be bluntly honest, it's patching, phishing, and uh, at that point, that's going to cover most of it. Uh, nobody keeps Network their inventory up to date and patched. Nobody actually pays much attention to phishing until it really, until they get owned by it. Um, so addressing those two things right off the bat uh, it handles 99 and some percent of, of the things that I tend to see. What about, uh, what about web that, application security, Eric? Does that does that come into play for small businesses, or mostly they're using uh, kind of canned it, web apps from someone else? It, they, they generally end up using uh, canned web apps that I've seen. Uh, it, to be bluntly honest, most small businesses that I, that I do business with, as it were, they don't do a whole lot of development in-house. Mm. They're not making web apps of their own. Uh, they're in this to make uh, car parts, or they're in this to print uh, uh, books, or they're in this to uh, do all sorts of other things. There's a lot of businesses that aren't, you know, primarily development focused. What? That's heresy. Yes, I know. It is. It is utterly heretical. I realize this, but there are parts of the world that aren't primarily focused on computers. It's it's weird. <laughs> well, there's so many choices today, too. In fact, we having these conversations at Security Weekly, and they're like, well, we could just write that. Like, we got you know, people who can, like, write software, make software. We should write I'm like, no, there's, like, at least a dozen or more other companies that make software. We should just use one of those instead. And I think that's where well, the small businesses are, are, are going to. Exactly. Well, I just want to check something. Paul, I just okay. want to check something. That's a cigar tube in your hand, right? Yes. Just checking. 
It is. Just checking. <laughs> it is not like a tampon or, or whatever else you thought. I, I don't know what else you could I think it no would judgments. be. I don't I know what no else judgments. you think it could be. But it is, in fact, a cigar tube. Yes. Josh, he got it from Canada. Uh, no, it is not a Cuban cigar either. It's actually from Nicaragua, in case you're wondering. I'm Josh, full of useless cigar knowledge. Don't get me started. <laughs> Josh, you know, sometimes a cigar tube is just a cigar it's just tube. A cigar tube. <laughs> that was beautiful, Eric. Beautiful. I just dropped an ash all on my lap. Josh. You do, you do that Josh, every week. Just, just, you just Schroeder, bro. Last, Schroeder. last week, Paul dropped ash in my lap. <laughs> I get tired of dropping it in my lap. I'm like, this is going someone else's lap. So I'm like... But Jeff, you shouldn't have been sitting on his lap. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, why not? Why not, Jeff? What's, I mean, that's what my sweater said. I had the my other ugly Christmas sweater has Santa on it, and it says "sit on my lap." Yeah, that wasn't that one last week. Jeff was just following directions. Follow-up question for Eric. You, you just said the two big things are patching and fishing. Early on, you said the biggest problem you see is lack of segmentation or the biggest challenge. Can you knit those two thoughts together? None of the big things are in my lap, just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> we knew that. <laughs> so patching is kind of a subset of, of the overall uh, inventory and asset management Uh which, in retrospect, perhaps I ought to have really said that first instead of patching. Um, and, and, and I will grant that, uh, yes, network segmentation is very important, but there's, that really only applies to a, a subset of the folks with whom I talk, um, those who are in the financial sector. Uh, and have specific requirements for that. Uh, it's it's one of those things where when it comes up, it's a huge thing, but there are a lot of businesses for whom, yes, it would be pleasant if they had it, but that's not really going to be a concern for them. They, they don't have the kind of, of compartmentation where they have some sensitive things and some non-sensitive things. They really only have one level of sensitivity in their business. Eric, would you lump into asset management, patch management? Would you put in that category vulnerability management? Does that come into play with your, your clients? I, I, you know, I stick that under patch management. I mean, it, it, the vulnerabilities are going to show up either through lack of patching or bad configuration. Uh, and, you know, configuration management, that's also part of asset management. It's, it's, it's all in that whole basic systems administration hygiene thing that people yes. need, but it's tedious, horrible work that no one actually wants to do. Oh, I couldn't have put it better myself. So when I, we were talking about my time at university when I was managing Solaris Systems, and <laughs> speaking of configuration management, we had configuration management back then. It was CF Engine, which is actually still, last I checked, the company today. What product recommendations do you make in terms of configuration management for some of your clients? You said you played on the Linux Unix side. Uh, I'm curious what, what's, in, what's in play today. A lot of folks really like Ansible. Yep. Uh, they, they enjoy that. It, it, it makes them happy. Python makes and me happy, yes. It makes a lot of people happy. Uh, it's, it's good enough for most people's purposes. It's free-ish in most cases. Uh, and it's, it's a... a a good solid starter, and that's what 
most of the people I talk with end up deciding on. Uh, I'll throw Puppet, Chef, and Salt out there as, as comparisons that they can investigate if they want to. Yep. But, you know, it, ultimately it's going to end up coming down to what can this organization afford to support with the staff that they have? What can the staff afford to learn about? Uh, and, well, Ansible is, is simple and it's quick to get going. And generally, people are happy enough with it that they can actually get on to the whole uh, job of actually administering their networks. Well, I, love Paul it. I mean, Eric, that's a general thing. comment on sorry on all software. As we we here at Security Weekly look at evaluating software for you know business processes, a bunch of boring stuff for most people. But uh, that seems to be, <laughs> to be the requirement. Like it's just it's good enough. <laughs> And that's where we run into with software. Like it's it's good it's good enough. Like there's unless you're writing it <coughs> yourself, which come that's a double edged sword, it's just gotta be good enough. It never is like a hundred percent fulfilling my requirements. Well, you know, for all these businesses that, you know, heresy though it is, their primary business is not writing software. Mm-hmm. It, good enough is probably the best that you are likely to get. They won't have the budget for custom solutions. They won't have the budget to train staff for custom solutions. Or hire a consultant. I mean, as I know from firsthand, Python developers are commanding a very respectable salary for what they do. But that adds up really quick, right? So you're going to take that into consideration and have a budget for it. Um, it's interesting. We're a small business, you, you could say. But, you know, we have custom in-house uh, software. And absolutely, we run ourselves because there's really nothing on the market to do what we need it to do. So, um, you know, we, we bite the bullet and, and we manage it. And I've been – I have a history in software. I was a software developer and I've managed software development projects. So – um, we have that, but not everyone has that luxury of having that experience, and that can increase the cost. If you don't know how to manage a software development project, go buy something off the shelf. Well, yeah. there's also there's there's another aspect involved here, and that's are you in the business of making custom configuration software, or are you in the business of making car parts? If you're not in the business of doing custom configuration software, why are you spending yes. so much time doing it? Right. If, if a good enough solution is going to get you to where you need to do your real business effectively, that's what's going to get used. It's just that sheer practicality. To have a successful business, you need to be in the business of making money. I mean, that's something like Kevin would say from Shark Tank, right? But, I mean, that's true. Yeah, but money's money's not everything, though. You know, like there's so many people that get lost on the fact that, oh, I got to have this much money. I got to have this much money. I got to have this money to pay these bills. I got to have this money to do this. You know, at the end of the, at the end of the day, money is just a tool. You know, let's not lose sight of that. Sure, yeah, don't say great. that to the shareholders or the stockholders. But, or, your, or your employees that expect a paycheck, too. That, that hey, perhaps we can just recast this. Yeah, but again, you can trace resources. all of that to back to being tools. You know, well, you need, maybe in your you need case, the tools Scott, to but... get the people and you need the people to build the tools. Right. So with that being said, you know, that's actually a really good parlay. I was, I was trying to tack on to what Eric was saying. You know, small businesses, when they're going through their business maturity life cycle, might not have the knowledge of being able to run the tools or have the technical ability or the aptitude to be able to come online with it unless you are a house that is doing programming you know what are the odds of you actually standing something up like that 
you know, without having a deep technical. Uh, and Eric, that's actually a really good question for you. For somebody that doesn't have a deep technical knowledge, how difficult is it to get these tools online? Um, in in most cases, I can help people understand uh, the basics that they need within eh, roughly, let's say, two or three sessions of an hour or two apiece. Uh, it, I, I have a, an approach that works for the folks I work with uh, where we spend a couple hours uh, with intensive tutoring, as it were, uh, showing them how things work, helping them work their way through interfaces, discussing in depth what they need. Uh, and then I give them uh, certain things to do in their own time, uh, sort of to practice what they're doing. And so after, say, uh, four or six hours of this, they generally have enough of an understanding of what's going on that they can intelligently start to make decisions on that. And I, I think it's different for every business in terms of making the decision as to whether to write it in-house or buy something off the shelf. And I've seen it go either way, right? I've seen in one of the first businesses that I work for, we had an in-house, essentially, like sales and customer uh, CRM. And, you know, it got to the point where we're like, you know, the code is terrible. Is it Y2K compliant? And we looked at this commercial solution, spent a whole bunch of time and money looking at commercial solution only to roll back and say, you know what? We're better off just fixing what we have. And, by the way, what we have is how we've been running the business successfully for a number of years. So let's just continue with what we have. And I'm not saying y that's always the right answer. What's that? Yeah, <laughs> I'm showing my age, but sometimes, <laughs> sometimes that's the right decision. And you know, I, I think well, some will go buy something off the shelf, and that may be the right decision. I think it's going to be different depending on the situation, the type of software. Sometimes you're just better off paying people in-house to maintain custom software for you, depending on how specific your business is. Uh, and sometimes it's better to get something off the shelf. Um, it's also, this is I think, better. True. Well, it, it, thank you, Eric. And I think also sometimes true as well. Like what you adopt early on, whether that's custom written or, or off the shelf software, is kind of what you have to stay with if you want to have a successful business. Uh, it, you know, and one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm looking at is I look into the world of startups and I look at the, the small businesses and you look at business process software, which is one of the projects on my plate now. And it's like, do you go with Salesforce and spend the time and money you need to get Salesforce going, or do you use a cheaper alternative, or do you do like a third option where you're using some cheaper alternatives and maybe you write some custom code to integrate them or use existing integrations? And I think that's just different for every business. It depends on your goals, right? I mean, investors investors are telling me, look, if you've got a really high-tech startup in security, for example, and your goal is to get funding and be on a fast track to be doubling your revenue and paying back your investors, they're like, absolutely, go with, go with Salesforce because you know what? Investors are going to look for that, and the salespeople you're going to hire, they're going to be familiar with that, and that makes total sense. But for other businesses that are on a different track, maybe not going to take funding, the answer could be different. Yeah, I think a lot of what you're suggesting, Paul, is you're, you're speaking Greek to most companies out there. <laughs> they, they don't go through all that. You're wanting them to plan and get ideas and actually think about what they're doing? Yes. Rather than yes. act now, act now, act now? Act now, act now can get you in trouble. Like act yeah. was software that could get you in trouble if you were using that for contact management. <laughs> 
Yeah, Sorry, Eric, this, Eric, go ahead. I want to get your take. Because I'm sure you see this a lot if you're dealing with a lot of small business. And I hate the term small business, but small businesses, they're, they're making these decisions every day. And, you know, it's, it's going to depend a lot on the nature of the business itself. Uh, every business, uh, not to be insulting, but every business is a special snowflake. They have mm-hmm. their, their various specific requirements for what they need to do to get their business done. Uh, they have varying levels of what kind of resources that they can provide to various things. And, you know, every, every man hour that they have to spend on evaluating software, on yes. learning software, on deciding which package to get or developing packages, that's a man hour they can't devote to their core business. Yep. Uh, it ends up being an irreversible kind of expense because you know it's the one thing that you can't get back is time. Mm-hmm. So it, you know if if they have a requirement for something, then they need to get that something in and built as quickly as possible uh, in order to continue doing what they actually need to get done. Right. And I mean sometimes it just I don't know some of the ways into my decision. We're a podcast company. We did the research. There's not a whole lot of software. In fact, there's maybe none, if you depending on your requirements, that exists for a podcast company to like push content out to the world. You know it, it, that software just doesn't exist. And every company I talk to says, "Yeah, you can try and use a couple of solutions out there, but it really doesn't work." And everyone else develops it in-house. So you know that's what we did. And for me, it's great because it gets to fuel my inner geek because I help maintain it too. So, you know, it keeps me sharp. But uh, back to your special snowflake comment, like that's going to be completely (laughs) different for other companies, completely different. Yeah, it's every company has each each time I I meet with a a new client, I end up learning about how they intend to go about doing business just as as a base requirement for okay so if they need to do business in this fashion then they're going to have to learn about this this and this other thing but this other thing that another company would find important isn't going to be applicable at all Mm -hmm. uh to go back to earlier uh some companies want a a a full-on migration to cloud and others understand clouds to be those white fluffy things that drift peacefully overhead. <laughs> uh, the rest of the, the gang, do you have questions for uh, Eric? Wow. So we uh, sort of covered the, the whole waterfront. Uh, um, I, I've, I've got one um, that I'm going to throw out there. M- my perception is that the uh, small medium market uh, seems to be more attracted to what Microsoft and, and Azure is doing uh, versus the sort of larger market being attracted to what AWS is, is doing, potentially more mature and longer longer life than Azure. Um, what's your what's your perspective on that? Uh, seeing as we're in the white fluffy clouds right now. <laughs> Um, well, frankly, I, I've only seen – now, granted, my particular slice of clients that I work with, uh, you may not be representative of the whole, et cetera, et cetera. The folks that I talk with, those that are interested in cloud stuff, are generally interested in AWS. But that's that's not necessarily because of any property of AWS itself. That's 
probably bluntly because of brand recognition. Everyone knows who Amazon is, and everyone knows that Amazon equals cloud. Mm. No, that's a good, that's a good point um, because it, it is definitely true that uh, Microsoft came late to the game, but they came with some interesting uh, market alternatives. And uh, I don't know where it's going to go, but I do get the sense that 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 the small medium space that have that nice smooth potential path for transition are potentially going to be uh, gobbled up, if you like, uh, by the Microsoft offering. But uh, So I was just curious, really, what your perspective was. But uh, no, I appreciate the comment. So let me ask a follow-up question. For those companies, let's say the companies that uh, believe the clouds are white and fluffy, uh, <laughs> but they make the decision, whatever the, whatever the rationale is, they make the decision that they're all in for the cloud, um, you know, my hunch is they're probably not companies that have very mature security programs. They probably don't do a lot of development. All these things we've talked about. What are the what are the uh, what are the types of things that you would recommend to a company that's going to make that kind of a jump of what they a need to look out for in terms of cloud provider and b uh, what they need to continue to do. Uh, in terms of security, uh, regardless of of where they end up in the clouds. So uh, back half first, because I'm feeling contrary. Um, First and foremost, I, I would recommend to these folks, and I do recommend to these folks, that they get a good solid handle on what traditional security looks like, because there's a lot of of things that end up being idiosyncratic depending on your cloud platform, uh, like good luck running in NIDs and AWS. It's just not going to happen. Or if you do try to make it happen, it's not going to work out too well for you. Hmm. Um, So as a general case, I, I, I want them to understand the perspective of traditional security before they go trying to do a completely new architecture. And at that point, they may decide as as they they learn more about the, the the cloud space to go back to the first half of your question uh, given how every platform has its idiosyncrasies idiosyncrasies is that a word should be oh well sure. it, it is, is now. it is now <laughs> as each platform has its its own particular uh, points that make it different from other platforms uh, and, and the, the kind of uh, visibility you can get into what's operating on them, uh, then they'll, they'll have a, a more informed understanding uh, to let them choose, to let them make a good choice as to what fits their actual business. Uh, you know, none of this is going to be one size fits all. And that's, that's something that, you know, despite all marketing to the contrary, I, I think people really need to understand deeply Everything needs careful consideration. Uh, you can't just jump in. So what are some of the touch points that you would define out for a small business to go down that road and make that decision? Like, what should they be looking for? Should it be that they're being driven by a pivot in their product? Or should it be that, okay, well, what we have right now doesn't work, so we're going to scrap it? Or, hey, Shiny, AWS, Azure, let's go with that. You know, what do you see yeah. as the, the decision points? 
To be honest, I don't get a whole lot of visibility into the whys. Uh, I've I've asked folks on numerous occasions, why are you going to cloud? And, well, it's generally a management directive of some kind. Uh, Management. You you read an article. Yeah, so you read an article or went to a conference and now cloud. Yeah. Well, and and, and specifically their their belief is they're going to save money. Yeah. Or and or they're going to make their compliance slash security concerns go away. Or Paul pulled them aside and had a quiet conversation. This could happen so, too. Yeah, it's it, there's there's a lot of potential drivers, but but basically, it all comes down to what are you exactly trying to do here? Are you just trying to move some of your application servers into some infrastructure you don't have to maintain yourself? Because that's going to have a, a very different kind of deployment. Uh, from, say, we're going to move absolutely everything up and everyone's just going to wander around with their smartphone uh, poking at the, the company web app. You know, those are, those are very, very different deployment and uh, situations. And they're going to have vastly different requirements. And understanding what they're actually trying to do, what their real motivation is, what, what their success metric is, is going to inform what decisions they can make. What is all this planning things you guys are talking about? Why plan? I know. Come it's, on. It's just cloud, cloud. Well, and, you know, that's 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 what I see a lot of is is no one wants to plan. No one wants to sit down and think these things through. And that's why I have gotten paid to be paranoid. I see the worst case scenarios. I see where it's going to fail and try and help people not. Well, and and for our listening audience to make sure that, you know, you're not missing the point, what you're not saying, what I'm not hearing you say is, oh, yeah, you you get huge advantages in terms of security and and uh, removing your obligation to 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 do the right thing. (laughs) I'm also not hearing You you, you save money, save money by going to the cloud. I it depends. don't think that's that's yeah it's it, it's possible in some limited circumstances yeah but it's I I I honestly in in most cases don't see people praising that aspect um it's it's going to depend real heavily on what you were doing and what you are planning to be doing. And if saving money is your your big prospect here, I will note, though, there is one particular thing that I have seen so far that is a great way to save money. And that is for write-only logs, Uh, you know, those things that you just accrue for compliance reasons and you never are going to look at them again unless there's something real specific that happens. Check them up to Glacier instead of keeping them on a, a local tape storage, and that that seems to work out well for some people. That is, that is one particular cloud usage that does seem to work and does seem to save money, and isn't that hard to implement uh, once you understand the rather peculiar way in which Amazon has chosen to implement that API. But in most of the other times, it it depends, like Josh says. And I thought depends was just something that Jack Daniel wore to security conferences, but apparently. Oh. <laughs> oh. Well, you know, uh, you know what one cannibal said. 
you know, one cannibal said to the other outside the retirement home, you know, what do these old people taste like? It depends. Yeah. (laughs) The the guy's not even here to defend himself. It's just. That's what makes it more fun sometimes. Eric, I've got five questions for you. Are you ready to play five questions with Security Weekly? Oh, I can try. Three words to describe yourself. That crazy guy. If you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice? Oh, what to choose? Uh, <laughs> so many <laughs> options. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, I'll go with a hammer. If you were to write a book about yourself, what would the title be? Put down this book. In the popular game of Ask Grabby Grabby, do you prefer to go first or second? never actually played it. It's popular in Europe. <laughs> Guess I better go to Europe and try it out. Then. <laughs> Europe's looking more and more attractive for my family vacation. <laughs> I heard they play Ask Grabby Grabby there. <clears throat> so first or second, Eric? It's multiple choice. Oh, um, I don't even know the rules, but first usually has an advantage, so why not? There you go. Choose two celebrities to be your parents. Alive, dead, fictional, non-fictional. Oh, I don't know. Um, dum da dum da dum da dum. Uh, Cardinal Richelieu and uh, uh, Marie Antoinette. Excellent. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> mind blowing. Mind blowing, right there. Completely. Isn't that like other sides of the spectrum? Whoa. Um. <laughs> Eric, thank you very much for appearing on Paul Security Weekly. It's wonderful having you. And thank you for letting me come on here and say horrible things. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. <laughs> Short break. Coming back with a, a Christmas segment. So stay tuned. Woo-hoo. 